0: I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Authentic Alex, Alexandra Galvez, is the queen of vulnerability, the gentle warrior, the wisdom whisperer. She has conscientious leadership, mental health, and advocacy for grief as some of her key words, if you will. She's a longtime instructor at LinkedIn, international keynote speaker, and on her website, I love what she has. She says, from trauma to triumph, breaking down the mental health stigma. And her core values, I couldn't be more in line with them. Authenticity, vulnerability, courage, and growth. Alex, thank you for being here today. I was just saying, as we were talking before the pre-interview, that it's been a long time since we spoke, but yet I've admired your work since 2017. So thank you for being here and thank you for taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me. It has been a long time indeed.
0: (laughs) It has been. I First saw you on LinkedIn in 2017, and LinkedIn was very different back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's changed, but life has changed. But I've still seen your authenticity and your vulnerability shine through. I've also seen that some people try to use authenticity as a tactic, and it comes off very false and very hollow. Can you speak to that? Do you see that very often as well?
1: Um. Do I see that often? I think I probably spend less time on LinkedIn as I used to back in 2017. That's my girl. <laughs> um, it, it has become a bit of a marketing wor- word, you know, that we use about, you know, our need to have content that's authentic and stuff. And I think that if we overthink it around trying to create authentic content, then it's likely that it's not going to be, you know, authenticity is is just showing up as you and sharing what's in your heart in that moment and what's present and it it actually probably doesn't require a lot of thinking and i think that's when you can possibly tell that um people are using it in a slightly different way and the thing is the reality is that we can see it right you know the moment that someone's trying to show or project a certain image you know at that point there's no authenticity there
0: yeah it's virtue signaling at best and it's again it feels very empty i'm finishing my second book now and I wrote my first book long ago, and I even caught myself in that, where it's like, I still need to just get back to that place. In my mind, I had made it out to be much more conflicted than what it needed to be. And eventually, I just sat down, shut up, and just start bleeding onto the page like I did before. And all of a sudden, it's there, right? But we have to have that courage to do it.
1: Yeah. And I also think that, you know, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that as well, because I think I, I had a recent realization with regards to authenticity around the fact that, you know, when I left my corporate job, I, I used to work in the financial services. And when I left back in 2017, when you first came across me, um, you know, I was so convinced that I was leaving the mask at the door. And that, you know, I was going to be myself because I was so pained by the fact that I had to show up or I felt like I had to show up in a certain way in the corporate world. And then I left and thought, nope, I'm going to run my own business. I'm going to do my own thing. It's going to be, you know, very authentic. It's going to be very me. And then I had my miscarriage a few years back and the process post that in terms of recovery and Understanding who I am because it absolutely strips you of your identity and stuff. It then made me think, oh my gosh, now like now I feel like the truest version of myself. But I'm sure that you know, in three four years' time, the way life is, some other big adversity is going to happen. And I think every adversity is an opportunity for authenticity. You know, for a deeper sense of who we are, because it, it takes away the stuff that's no longer serving us.
0: I couldn't agree more. It absolutely strips away all the bullshit, all of the platitudes or all the things that we think that we're doing. Yeah. Because at that point, we don't care anymore. It's like, I'm just trying to be here. I'm trying to be present mm. and and heal. And until we get to that place, everything else is just going to be superficial at best.
1: Yeah. And I think I've learned to have compassion for the former version of myself right. because I couldn't have known better, right? Or I was as authentic as I could have been in that specific moment with everything that I knew and I'd experienced in life
0: yeah i think authenticity is like meditation it's a practice
1: mm. it's a way of life and i i recently uh, wrote a blog called the challenge of authenticity at the end of it i wrote if i had known what it would cost me <laughs> you know i think i might have hesitated to make this my way of life right. because there are downsides to it
0: mm.
1: however i wouldn't trade it for the world because being myself is like priceless
0: could you expand on those downsides?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I lost a lot of connections, specifically with family members and potentially some friends, because I no longer, you know, as I delved deeper into who I was, I changed and I, ch- in their eyes, I changed not for the better, because I wasn't who they wanted me to be. I didn't meet their expectations. And that was very difficult for, you know, certain people. And, and for them, they're like, well, what happened to the person we knew? And I'm like, thank God that, you know, I am who I am now. Um, But, and that authenticity might look like being, you know, putting boundaries, understanding my mental health better, understanding what my needs are, and creating healthier relationships. But that might be jarring to other people, right? Especially when we're changing and evolving and, and stripping away things and becoming more of who we are. I also think that that challenges a lot of people especially in friendship groups I find it shakes the foundation of what people know in terms of their own way of life because we live in a society that is very kind of everyone look you know does the same looks the same you know like we're all a collective group of conformity and authenticity requires you to show up fully as yourself that then ends up being that you stand out a lot when you really embrace who you are. And if you do that, other people are like, oh, you know, what does that say about me? That's sort of conforming with all the rest. And that's quite jarring for a lot of people. I think though, to me, those two things are probably like the the most challenging, I think of the journey is is losing those relationships that to me mattered or that the relationship suffered as a consequence.
0: But, Again, like all these things, we we have to evolve or change. If we don't, we just continue to repeat the same thing. I know that you've read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I imagine where he talks about resistance so often.
1: I've not. I've heard about it though.
0: It's a very short book, and it's incredible. He capitalizes resistance with an R, the same way he's why I capitalize adversity with an A, mm-hmm. because it's this physical entity that we have to go against many times, especially when we're trying to become a higher evolved person in the process. Mm-hmm. And like you say, we have all these other kinds of conflicting priorities, so to speak, but we have to understand that if we don't prioritize ourselves, our needs, our wants, our desires, then we can spend our life satisfying everybody else and still end up incredibly empty in the process. For sure. It's powerful. Could you tell us about what happened in 2019 and how that has changed you into the woman that I'm speaking to today?
1: Yes. Um, So I fell ill one evening and I wasn't feeling very well. I was in a lot of pain in an unusual amount of pain. And the next morning I thought I should probably go to the hospital and and check because it was like not doctor level pain. It was like, you know, emergency room pain. And so I hopped in an Uber, you know, didn't even call an ambulance, which I probably should have. And my partner at the time had gone, he was studying. So he'd gone to his course and he said, you know, do you want me to come? And I said, no, it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. You know, like, I'll be fine. If I need you, I'll let you know. So I get to the emergency room and I sit waiting for a bit, get into the room with the consultant. And he sort of asked me, you know, do you think you're pregnant? And I said, well, you know, I'm maybe, but like, I'm not sure. And he said, okay, well, let's just start with a test. And so he got the test back and he said, you're pregnant. And it's likely that the symptom that you're having is that you're miscarrying. Mm. And in that moment, I just kind of burst into tears. And I I mean, like it fills me with rage every single time. And he turned around and he said, why are you crying? I was like, what? (laughs) How can you even ask that? um and I I was just absolutely livid and he said you you know we've got to send you to to another hospital to have like checks done and to see what's going on and and get an ultrasound and stuff like that and so at that point I rang my partner he met me just as I was coming out of my consultation and I just kind of my whole body just fell to the ground like I was just super overwhelmed with emotion and sadness and all, yeah, anger and everything. And also just really confused because, you know, I went from a morning where I didn't know that that, you know, I was even pregnant to, to miscarrying within the space of one sentence. And it was, you know, I had a an interesting experience because maybe, I don't know, like a few weeks before that had happened, I had gone to the supermarket and, it was a very cold day in London and I was wearing a very big puffer jacket with like a zip and buttons and a buckle and layers of clothes. And I was sort of food shopping and I put down my basket and I undid the buckle, undid the buttons and then put my hand on my belly. I lifted up my jumper and put my hand on my belly. And then I kind of like without thinking at all. And then I kind of like clocked onto what I was doing and I was like, what is that about? And in that moment, I just knew. And so, whilst it was a surprise, there was an element of kind of like an inner intuitive yes. knowing, um, you know my body knew what was happening. And so it was a very early miscarriage. and and then we ended up in this sort of limbo. I went to the to the next hospital. I got my bloods done and they were like, you are pregnant, your hormone levels. And you get thrown into this world, like I'd never been pregnant before. So you get thrown into this world where you kind of don't understand any of the terminology. Like it's not as if you're, you know, you're preparing for a pregnancy. So you're reading all these books. So you're understanding all this terminology and what's going to happen and what's the procedure and et cetera. And so all of a sudden I'm like, what's HCG? Like, what's this? What's that? You know, just trying to figure it all out in addition to dealing with all the emotion and all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, we spent about 10 days kind of in limbo because my hormone levels kept going up as if I was continuing to be pregnant, but I had the symptoms of a miscarriage and they couldn't find anything in the ultrasound. So it took quite a while for the egg to show up on my ultrasound and it turned out that I had an ectopic pregnancy. Mm. So that's when the egg gets stuck in a fallopian tube. That's super high risk. So then there was a whole bunch of like, oh God, like how do we deal with this? Because if you don't deal with it quickly and in the right way, it could rupture and then that's life-threatening. So it was just kind of a 10-day blur of emotions and fear and happiness because there was the potential of maybe I was pregnant and we were okay if that was the case. And so, yeah, this sort of weird liminal space of 10 days not knowing until eventually we had an ultrasound they found the egg and they you know said okay well what do you want to do now and they said the options are we you know give you some medicine to for it to pass through we wait for it to naturally happen or we operate and luckily I had my sister-in-law's midwife and she was incredibly supportive. And, you know, I said to her, you know, these, these are my options. What do I do? And so we just decided to let it be. And hopefully like literally just prayed for, for it to pass through without me having to have any surgery or any medication. Cause I was aware the medication was incredibly strong. It's a similar drug that they use for cancer treatment. Wow. So I was just like, I really would rather this sort of happen naturally. And luckily it did. And then it was the aftermath of recovery, you know, the, there's the emotional recovery, the physical recovery, the spiritual recovery, um, the mental recovery, like it's a, a, it's a whole process and nothing. I was absolutely prepared for whatsoever. Like it just floored me. It absolutely floored me.
0: And it's so, when we're going through trauma and we're going to this place of acceptance, there's the five stages. There's the denial, potentially anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. But you were forced to go through this simultaneously on four or five different labels all at one time. So you're trying to come to terms with, wow, this is incredible. Oh, this is dangerous. Oh, this is heartbreaking. Oh, th- But th- things could still be okay, like you said. So you're this huge roller coaster of emotions. And then the conflicting ideas of, because you don't know how to feel. Right? You're not sure what to feel and you're just toggling back and forth between all these emotions almost simultaneously.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I would say that even, you know, just after it happened, there was a lot of sadness and then there was just a lot of numbness. Like I just was like it was like I was drugged in some way, like that I was just walking through life, not feeling anything and just being kind of dazed with not knowing what to do. And it took a long time, you know, getting to the shower was really like a difficult feat, you know, and it reminded me a lot of having depression, you know, when I worked in the corporate world, where I couldn't get out of bed. The only difference was this time, I was in physical pain, like it just it wasn't just like a mental thing. And so, you know, walking down the road, like within five minutes, I was exhausted. And, you know, I was eight weeks along, that's not a lot. like a lot of time and yet my body had changed a lot already. And so when I had the ultrasound, they started to talk about, you know, this is the lining of your wall and this is how your pelvis has moved. And you know, and I'm just like, wow, this starts happening super early on. And and starts moving in different ways. And you know, my spine was affected a lot. Had a lot of pain in my back and my spine area. And I just thought, whoa, this is, you know, this is this impacts you so much more than I think people think about because we don't tend to talk a lot about miscarriage. It's a very stigmatized thing. We talk a lot about, uh, you know, like stillbirths or late losses and stuff like that. And i zero comparison because they're all different experiences. But, you know, miscarriage is one that is even more, I think, stigmatized where we just don't talk about it because it's like, well, you know, it was early. So, let, you know, it's not the same thing or it can happen again. And that's something you hear a lot when you hear people talk about miscarriage.
0: Lots of times when we're going through adversity like that, we or afterwards, we want to understand what does this mean? Like, what, what is this supposed to mean? And like you said, when you're numb, sometimes we just have to come to that place of acceptance and say, this doesn't have to mean anything right now. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I can attach meaning to it afterwards. But at the time, we want to try to disengage and silo ourselves to protect ourselves in the process of doing that.
1: For sure. Yeah. And, you know, something that I realized very recently, actually, in, a, in, a, in another podcast, because someone had mentioned a similar loss that they had, they were like, oh, you know, we've experienced this X amount of times. And I was like, actually, it was my first, like, loss. It was my first grief. Mm-hmm. Like, I I hadn't had any major losses in my life before then. You know, sure, grandparents, but I was very, very young and I wasn't that close because I lived abroad. And I didn't see them that much, even family, friends, again, you know, a few, but not particularly close. So this was like very much my first lesson in grief, shall we say, and and a a very hard one (laughs) for, you know, I mean, any grief is hard, but this was particularly hard because it was unexpected. And it was you're confronted with having to understand how you deal with grief, how you understand grief. And how you work through that process.
0: And that's that's so key. We have to work through it. If we try to circumvent the emotion or the grief, that doesn't serve us. And in my experience, we can only deal with adversity one of two ways, correctly or again. And when it comes back, it's compounded.
1: A hundred percent. I've seen that. I've seen that with a, with a friend that I'm very close with. And you know, her grief seems absolutely unbearable. And we talk about it openly. And it's like... Well, you know, it's actually when you haven't dealt with all the other stuff that your grief will just trigger all the rest and then you feel incredibly overwhelmed. And I think in a way I didn't know at the time, but I was super lucky that before that happened, I had already been in therapy for quite a few years. I'd done a lot of healing work. I was really proactive with my mental health because of my you know, experience with depression. So I knew I you know, I was sort of semi prepared. Like that that experience of triggering lots of other things didn't happen because I'd done the work. And that was, you know, probably something I've not realized until now. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's, it's another reason why we have to give ourselves that capacity and that bandwidth, that space in many ways. Because how many entrepreneurs do we know? How many people do we know that are being brave and they don't need this or that, that they're tough? Or the ones that deploy empathy for everyone else, but not me. Mm. I'm strong. I don't need it.
1: Yeah, and I was just reading just yesterday an interview by Cara Delevingne, in uh, the model and actress, and she was talking about her adversity, and she said, "You know, we always think about therapy as the thing that we go to when things are bad." And she was like, "If I've understood anything, it's when things are good that we need to be doing this work." And I thought, "Yes, <laughs> yes, that is a, a golden nugget right there."
0: Yeah, and again. I thought that I had dealt with a lot of adversity before my injury. I thought that many dark nights of the soul, but again, at the moment, it's, it's unlike anything else. And it's overwhelming. And there's, like you said, all these conflicting feelings, these emotions of, am I being selfish? Am I overblowing this? Mm. Can I just act like this is not here? But the, the longer we wait to face the adversity, the greater the weight of that adversity once we are able to, to face it. So being in this place, you were able to slowly work your way through it. So after you got beyond that place of being numb, what were the next steps for you? And then you started writing about it openly whenever you were doing therapy.
1: Yeah, so my partner at the time, two things happened. My partner at the time suggested that I go and see a therapist um, because I had stopped therapy about a year or so before. And I thought that's a good idea. I came to realize that that was a mistake we both made because we were both dealing with loss and it was probably wiser for us to go together.
0: Mm. There's
1: a very high percentage of couples that don't stay together post miscarriage or post loss, baby loss. And we were one of those couples. And I think a lot of it's to do with the way that we deal with grief differently in terms of women and men. You know, now in hindsight, we've both said like, you know, when, when that was, when he suggested I go, it was probably something that we both should have done together. So I went to to therapy and that really began my healing process. And in that moment I had this wild idea of like what if I documented my grief and healing process and talked about what's coming up in therapy and at the time you know no one was still talking about mental health the way it's mainstream on LinkedIn now. Yeah. And I thought why not, you know like what do I have to lose? I'm, I'm already in a shit place anyway. <laughs> so, and also I thought maybe, you know, maybe this might help someone. And, and that's always driven me like from a very, you know, for many years when I started content creating with like, if I can share my story and it helps one person, then that's worth spending however long it takes to write that or the courage to, you know, click post. So that, newsletter called From Trauma to Triumph became my kind of cathartic process. And I always said to my readers, I said, you know, I write for me first and for you second, yeah. you know, and if it helps someone, then great. And if it doesn't, at least I got it out of my system. And then the second thing that was sort of quite major for me was that I, uh-huh. so I had met someone on LinkedIn um, in a very strange way. I I was training to use a psychometric tool, like one of those personality type tools. The trainer said, you know, we need to do the training in, the, in a room in central London. Does anyone have anywhere that they could, you know, we could host this? And I said, I don't, but I definitely have a network where someone will say yes. And so I just put it up on LinkedIn and I said, does anyone have a room for, you know, an hour or so for us to be able to use? And a woman called Kate Visma basically said to me, you know, I have a room in my office, you're welcome to use it. So we went there and um, did the training. And then I I actually didn't know her. And she, I don't even think she was even in my network. So I'm not sure how it came up on her feed. And then after we used her room, I said to her, you know, what do you do here? We, we're at university. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, I research resilience here at the university. And I thought, oh, interesting. <laughs> And so I offered her a coaching session um, to do with this tool that we were training in. And we just, you know, stayed in contact. And when I had my miscarriage, I had felt incredibly alone. Like it was an incredibly lonely experience because no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to talk about it. So I, before I started the newsletter, Maybe two months after I'd had the miscarriage, I did a video talking about the fact that I had a miscarriage on LinkedIn, and it had been viewed tens of thousands of times and Kate had seen it and she'd messaged me and she was like, "You know, I've had you know a, a similar experience." and she said, "I'm going to this women's retreat. Would you be interested in joining?" And I thought, I'm not a big fan of all women's thing. I don't do retreats camping in the woods." <laughs> like this is so out of my comfort zone in so many ways, and yet I think I was in such a bad place that I was like anything to help me from drowning right now. You know, in my grief, and so I went to that retreat, and I would say that that retreat absolutely changed my life. It, it was almost four years ago, in June, June, July, and it was a retreat where we were told a myth. Um, called The Handless Maiden. And this myth was told by two women over the space of three, four days. And I'd never seen the storytelling like it, you know, like in the business world or even on LinkedIn, like you see a lot of storytelling. I'm a storyteller. And this was like ancient, old, mythical storytelling around the fire. You know, it was just embodied... And it was such an amazing experience. And the story, you know, it was about a woman and initiation, her relationship with her parents, meeting her partner, you know, she ends up pregnant and um, she ends up in the woods in a cabin with a group of women. And, you know, the story, there's so many themes, but the, the theme that stuck with me the most was this idea of community, but more than anything sisterhood. And at the time, I would say, like I said, I wasn't a big fan of all women events. I grew up with surrounded by men in my family. I had a lot of hobbies as a kid that were like male, you know, uh, centric hobbies. Um, I went to an all boys school. I worked in finance, which was in foreign exchange, which was like you know ninety percent men in the yeah. companies I worked with, and ten percent women. So I and I'd also had very bad experiences with women um, when I went to more girls' school and I was bullied, and my relationship with women in the corporate world was always very difficult or competitive. So when I got to this retreat, it just absolutely massively changed my perspective about what it means to be in sisterhood and what it feels like to be supported and to be held and to be in communion and heal as a collective group, and that really did massive things for me not just that but it had like a massive knock-on effect and I remember specifically at one moment we this woman she was solely charged with singing into the food that we were eating everything she'd cook everything and she'd just sing into the food and I was like wow and then I thought that's strange (laughs) but it looked so wow And then when we'd sit and eat, you know, Emma, who was the lead facilitator of this group, she'd take a spoon of food and she'd put it into the earth as a gesture and as an honor to the ancestors and to the earth that feed us. And I was like, again, this is really weird. But then it also felt really normal. And then I was like, hmm. And then there was just this very strange energy of time standing still over those four, five days where you didn't know what time it was <laughs> and you'd heard strange sounds and look, you know seen strange shadows in the space and it was just a very kind of magical mystical space in those woodlands um mm. and I just remember thinking that was a very strange week <laughs> and I got home and I was like, I remember talking to my partner that knew about spiritual, you know, he'd been practicing spirituality from a really young age, but we didn't really tend to talk about it that much. And I sort of explained a few things and he was like, well, you know, it sounds like he had, you know, a bit of a spiritual week with these ladies. And that I think really kind of kicked off my curiosity for like, I need more of this sort of healing spaces that are a little bit more alternative. And, you know, for someone that's incredibly logical, that's very focused on therapy and psychology and mind related modalities, you know, this was super new territory for me to be seeking my healing. And I think now I see it also as seeking my faith. You know, I didn't, at the time I wasn't practicing any kind of faith and and in a way, I think I was just looking for some kind of hope in these different things and so i just threw myself into like a million different alternative healing modalities when i realized that therapy what you know was helping me to a certain extent but there was more to to kind of dig deeper and and the talking therapy just wasn't doing it for me anymore and i realized that now you know looking back it was important for me to do somatic work it was important for me to do soul related work because you know the the loss was physical in my body but it was also you know now I've learned it's also ancestral like there was a lot of ancestral grief that I was carrying of people in my female lineage that had had miscarriages and not processed them so I've learned a lot (laughs) in the last three four years and I have been some strange things and some interesting teachers, but everything has helped me to get me to where I am now that I'm in a place that I can talk about it and I'm in a place that I can share you know the knowledge of what I've learned and the experiences that I've had
0: and it's it's such an incredible journey because we see people on both ends of the spectrum, as you say, some people that don't want the logic, they don't want this psychology, they don't want to do this sort of work. they want to lean into the side that you're talking about. But mm-hmm. if all we do is, if we're on one end of that extreme, then we're missing a lot of that stuff in the middle. And frankly, like you said, if we're so far on one side, we have to go to the other direction just as hard to get some semblance of, of blend or balance. And and I don't believe that balance is like attainable, but I believe that the capacity to adapt appropriately to the environment is. And that in and of itself is our ability to have that. Balance is not the static thing where I'm balanced and now nothing can change. It's like, well, once the wind blows, you fall down. But being able mm. to to be adaptable from a resilience standpoint, to be able to give yourself that space, to also be very honest and say, no bullshit, where am I at? What am I feeling? I don't need to put on a brave face here. I'm not lying to myself or to these other people. It's not going to help me get where I need to go. So you were saying also that women process grief differently than men. Can you touch on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, especially with miss, And I, I'm talking for miscarriage because that's my experience, but What I read, and I remember it so clearly, it said, you know, when women... You know, that experience I had where I touched my belly in the supermarket, that's such an intuitive, motherly kind of connection with, you know, even at that early stage, I had that experience. That's not something my partner could have understood. (laughs) Right? Because it's not something that's felt um, and it's not in his body. And so... When I experienced a loss, I felt like there was something there, right? Because of that experience more than anything. And so what I'd read was that a man, unless he has a baby in his hands physically, will really struggle with the kind of psychology of actually I've lost that. And so that's something I think that generally women express themselves more. Women are more open to going to therapy and I'm not saying that men aren't, but we live in a society that has blocked a lot of men from expressing their emotions, from going to therapy, from seeking help, from talking to their friends about this or their family. And so I think that, unfortunately, you know, grief is difficult to process, but I think it's even more difficult for men. And I think that we see that societally these days. I, a good example is I, <laughs> I run a, a grief cafe called the Cafe of Endings and New Beginnings, and it's all women, right? And I'm like, where are all the men at? <laughs> and so I put a post on LinkedIn maybe like two, three weeks ago saying, you know, specifically men, but women can answer too. How do you process your grief? And a lot of men wrote, I don't, right? Like got a large proportion. And I thought, I'm not surprised, you know? And I also don't think it's just a man's thing. I just think generally, societally, we're not educated or grief literate in the subject of grief and dealing with grief and processing grief. And, you know, that I think that will always be harder for men than it is for women. And yet we feel, we feel it just as much.
0: Well, and here's the part that men don't understand, whether it be grief, whether it be anxiety, depression, that is affecting not just the man, but the women around him. For sure. The relationship with women that he has. So whether it be a daughter, I have a a 21 year old stepdaughter. So if I'm not brave enough to handle my own shit, how am I going to be able to show up for her Mm. when she needs me, whether it be as a male role model or just somebody that loves her and supports her no matter what? I mean, that's incredibly selfish in a lot of ways. Yeah. And for men, it's hard for us to acknowledge it to ourselves many times, let alone to another man, let alone to women, because as you say, we can talk about society and, and stuff a lot, but there are some very diametrically opposed ideals when it comes to this. Even right. if people preach one thing, we see how, you know, if a man has a problem, suck it up. Even by people that claim that they want you to be open. It may not be as direct like that, but it's it's kind of ancillary as this indirect approach with it. And then other times men that are proclaiming to be so vulnerable and yet they're doing that again as this kind of platitude to try to attract more of that. And it's not allowing them or it's not forcing them to really to look at those things.
1: But I also think that they don't potentially have the awareness, right? So so absolutely. a few months back, my partner at the time, who I had the miscarriage with, sent me a message and said, you know, I'm really sorry. I really messed up, like not being there for you when you needed me. And I didn't really understand what was happening. And I didn't try to. And I was so like grateful for getting that message because I was like, wow, that takes a lot first to send after not speaking for a few years, yeah. but two, to have come to that awareness and acknowledge that that's something that had happened. And in a way, I'm assuming that the reason he came to that awareness was at some point that grief would have come up and he would have had to deal with it. And maybe it was three years later.
0: And and for so many of us, it's like a child that hits a hot stove. We face this hardship, this adversity, and then we want to get away from it. Okay. But if we have the courage to stay close to this wound while it's open and, and see it as something almost sacred, then it allows us that chance to begin this journey, allows us this chance to see all these opportunities on the other side of it. And for me, again, I, I was 40 when I was paralyzed and my life was taken from me, in my opinion. It forced me to unpack everything from my recent divorce at that time to my parents' divorce to how that affected me, to how that affected every relationship, every decision I was making. Being in that place, I didn't have any other option, but it still took me three months to get to that rock bottom. So, for so many of us now, we have to do that.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I genuinely think that sometimes some people just have to hit rock bottom to get to that place where they can.
0: It's undeniable at that point. We have to face it. Yeah. So, for you, because you've been able to, embrace this in many ways what is the lesson for you how are you leaning into this more and how is that continuing to feed you and then vicariously help others in the process
1: i think my adversity has always been my purpose in some shape or form um you know my when i left my corporate world and i was dealing with sort of all the mental health issues that came with that experience and you know trying to live an authentic life and to live a life with purpose it naturally you know happened that people came to me and said well how do you do that and i was like well you know let me show you let me tell you and, and and so that kind of became my work and you know after my experience i just started to fall out of love with what i was doing before you know i i wasn't interested in helping people market themselves on linkedin or, or to you know sell and that kind of thing and And I enjoyed it at the time and it was feeding me and then it no longer was because my values had changed, my identity had changed, my interests had changed and my purpose. My purpose always remains the same around living an authentic life, but the way I lived it or wanted to live it had changed. And so, you know, now I'm kind of in the the middle of a, a bit of a transition into what that looks like next. And very much in that process, but part of that was like, okay, well, you know, let me learn more about you know what I've experienced, and so I, I enrolled in a death doula course so to explain that because not not everyone's heard that terminology before.
0: Yes, death doula, I love it. yes
1: yeah, so a, a, a doula is um, it comes from the Greek word um, that describes a woman of service, and we talk a lot about them in relation to like a birth doula. So this person that comes in and kind of emotionally supports a woman that's giving birth and on the other side of that spectrum you have a death doula that emotionally and spiritually supports someone that maybe has a terminal illness or is you know about to die soon and so they come in and they support the family and the person that's um passing and then can support post that so in grief now i don't have a reason specifically as to why I chose to do that. I think I in a very strange series of synchronicities I came across this course. I actually got told about it by two different like in two different ways. So I was like, okay, that was a very clear sign. Mm. And um I think at the time it was I mentioned a friend that I was kind of helping with her grief. She was my neighbor and I spent a year kind of helping her holding space and helping her through her grieving process when she'd lost her mum. And I was seeing you know I, I was running some leadership development um, workshops where people were we were talking about leadership and legacy and people were talking about the you know the legacy that some family members had left behind and how that influenced their leadership style. I was coaching a client that you know on branding and LinkedIn stuff and the grief of her aunt had showed up in the coaching session. And so I was like, wow, there's so much that's kind of showing me that grief is really present in my work already. Right. I need to be better equipped at understanding grief, not just from an experience point of view, but from a practitioner's point of view. And so that was what interested me in joining the course of understanding grief and death and loss more. And it was kind of one of those things, and, and I've done these a few times where it's like, I have no idea if this is what I want to do, but I just know it's something I have to do. And the beauty is that the opportunities of the back, off the back of that, who knows where it takes me, right? So I'm in the process of that course. I'm probably two, maybe a third into it. Um, It's a year course. And so what I've come to realize is that, you know, I'm probably not that interested in actually like helping people with their dying process. However, I'm particularly interested in helping people with their grieving process. And that might look like, like I mentioned, the cafe, the death cafe that I run. It might also look like, um, you know, retreats or, you know, workshops or even one-to-one sessions or just helping people with that process in, in some shape or form or through creative writing classes. So that's something I'm sort of still kind of exploring, um, but it's also talking about it, you know, in podcasts or in companies. I'd love to start talking about briefing companies. Because we don't talk about it. And yet, society, we have a huge amount of collective grief right now.
0: And it's so important, because as you say, once we recognize this truth, and it's so undeniable to us, it's very easy to recognize in other places. And that's the the thing. Once we recognize that truth in anything, we start seeing it everywhere. And that's why, again, as a coach or anything that we're doing, that's what helps me when I'm coaching a client, you have the CEO who's Incredibly successful, and if you look at the the money and all this stuff, it looks great. But then, because I've been in a place where I can see this quiet desperation,
1: yeah, I can see yeah.
0: this just barely barely holding it together because they have to be strong for everybody else. And then the person that actually needs their strength themselves, they don't have time for that. There's too many other things going on.
1: And I think that people can't, like, not a lot of people can recognize their grieving, right? They can recognize they're angry, they can recognize they're sad, but they might not recognize their grief or their loss. And I think people often think that grief is just the loss of someone. And it's so not, you know, it's the loss of a job, it's the loss of a dream, it's the loss of a future, it's the loss of of a partnership or a relationship. You know, there are so many losses that we experience and so many that we don't honor or process because we don't think it's a big deal, and yet it is. And that kind of grief is called disenfranchised grief. Mm-hmm. You know the kind of grief that we you know society don't acknowledge because it's stigmatized or because we don't talk about it because it's too small a grief for it to be important.
0: So another client that I have, and I can do this without breaking any confidentiality, they always had this dream of back passion across Europe. But they were going to do that after the the business was successful. So we already see that this is conflicting. It's like, okay, now you're working your your face off to succeed in this business. And then he and his wife found out that they were going to have a baby. And even though he had all the success, that death of that dream for the other one to come to, to pass was something that was hard for him to resolve. And we talked about the the five stages of grief, right? So for him, he was in that depression component. Mm-hmm. But he had stayed in that and it had just completely gone through everything. And it was this residue that he wasn't even aware of. It was this unclosed loop that just kept going and kept going and kept going. And finally, when I was like, until you let go of that or make peace with that, and then again, he's like, well, I can't go do it now. I was like, well, I'm not saying that you have to do it now, but you have to be very aware of it so that you don't continue to get ambushed by this thing emotionally. Because if we're not careful, what do we do? We build resentment. I have ceos are like i'm working my ass off to to provide for my family and i feel like they don't give me the respect or the you know attention that i deserve well no this person up to a point they were but now the rest of it is again validation from society oh they're a philanthropist oh they're making all this money and now it's their ego but they don't want to unpack that and be honest and say actually up until about two hundred thousand dollars ago, it was about providing for your family. Now this is all about you, and you don't have the balls to actually look at yourself and be honest about it. So until you do that, the rest of this stuff, you're just trying to cover up this bandit, put a bandit on cancer, as it were, and we can never get to that next place.
1: One hundred percent, and you see it a lot in the corporate world. It's rife.
0: Yeah, it is, and like you said, you can almost smell it. It's it's right there. It's it's undeniable, and. Again, it's this importance of us being able to be detached, to, to look outside with this disinterested curiosity, because now we can see that person in the arena that's making the mistake. But at the same time, until we do the work on ourselves, we're going to fall into the same pitfalls over and over again in our own lives. And we're not aware of it. Yeah. it's beautiful. We talk about authenticity. I want to ask you something that's a little different. What is AI going to do to the human authenticity? And right. <laughs>
1: You know, it's such a timely question because I got tagged in a conversation on LinkedIn for LinkedIn Learning Instructors. And um, they're doing this sort of new feature called Collaborative Articles or something like that, where AI generates conversations and then invites experts to chime in with their opinion. And I was looking through the list. I got access to the list of what those topics are going to be. And I messaged them and I said, I left a comment and I said, it's a shame that there's nothing to do with kind of well-being and mental health. And they were like, yes, but we're talking about AI here. <laughs> and I thought, good point. I didn't put two and two together. And, the, you know, they were talking about the fact that, you know, can AI generate conversations around mental health and well-being when it's to do with human emotion? You know, and I had a conversation with a client that I'm very close with that I will not name. And when I was talking to them about providing, let's just say, uh, I'm trying to say this without (laughs) disclosing who I'm talking about, but designing some content for a company, they were like, we're not interested unless it's um, technology and AI related. And I thought, and yet the entire world is currently in this collective grief post pandemic and tons of people are losing their jobs. And companies aren't interested in providing emotional or well-being support or education. And I got really, really angry (laughs) because I was just like, I feel like I'm back in the corporate world where humans aren't important and technology and investing in technology and productivity is, is what drives businesses in their eyes. And I'm like, no, it's not the research points that it's not the case. And yet we're still in the same place, you know, all these years later. i was a little bit
0: frustrated (laughs) i'm the same way i was talking to i'm getting ready to record my audio book for the second book and when i talked to them they were like hey we've got all these like new like advancements as a matter of fact we just need you to come in and read like the first four pages and we can ai your voice and i was like no never 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 and now on the intro for the new book i'm going to actually put in there in no way shape or form did i bounce anything off of or into ai these are all human thoughts, human emotions, human turmoils that I put on paper with my hands and my fingers to create something authentic and real because it's sad to me, right?
1: I mean, isn't it crazy that we have to like put that in, you know, that we have to actually write that? <laughs> like, what? Well, that's nuts that we live in a world like that now.
0: I agree. I never thought that I would live this long. But at the same time, yeah, I also believe that that will be your and I's like, secret weapon because
1: for sure yeah
0: when you see all this content that has a bunch of either jargon or stats or you know insert theory or postulation here to sound intelligent it's like no people don't need that you and i can go through and and break down all of the the biases and the cognitive dissonance and, and what that does to grief and what that does with adversity but having said that at the end of the day it's like can you connect to me as a human can you be very honest Can you allow me that space? I've worked with companies where I literally, one of the things we do is I just have them face each other and I ask them probing questions and I force them to sit there and listen. They don't get to correct this person. They don't get to save this person. They don't get to answer the question. They have to just sit there and be present and listen. Mm -hmm. And it every single time, it it's a huge breakthrough and it's like how interesting it is that that simple interaction is enough to break down walls, silos, barriers, communication. Mm. But can we do that with AI? Absolutely not.
1: And you know, this is all to do with relationships. It's to do with storytelling. It's to do with emotions. And I think that, you know, of course technology has its place and, and has its value But I just, you know, if anything, I think it's going to, people are going to need this, you know, going to need that support in those areas so much more because it will impact us. Like, absolutely.
0: It will. And here's the other thing. Like you say, everybody's excited about AI right now because it is new, because it is exotic and it is different. But again, we're going to take this long route just to get back to the place that we are right now, understanding Oh, yeah. I actually have to care about this person. Oh, I actually have to care about myself. I have to see them as a human and myself as a human in order to get to this place where now I can say they're fallible, they have errors, they're chinks in the armor, and so do I. Now, what do I do moving forward?
1: Mm, for sure.
0: So where can our listeners learn more about you? Where can we follow you? Where can we get more of your content? What What can we do? Tell us all the things, Alex. Yeah.
1: You can um, find me on LinkedIn under Alexandra Galvez. Um, You can follow my newsletter on Substack, which is called Crossing the Threshold, um, or my website, which is www.alexandragalvez.com.
0: And what was the name of the the Grief Cafe?
1: Yeah, so the the Grief Cafe is called the Cafe of Endings and New Beginnings, which you can find on Eventbrite. um, And there's also the link on my LinkedIn page too.
0: Fantastic. And then are you speaking anywhere anytime soon in person?
1: Uh, tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm sure, I, I don't think this is going to come out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, um, guys. I can't get you there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm doing a talk on authenticity, but um, yeah, not anytime soon because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in a, in a transition mode. So I'm slowly get, getting back into, into podcasting. There's only my, well, first one back actually. Yeah. It's the new uh, a new chapter work wise. So stay tuned. You'll find out about it on my LinkedIn for sure.
0: Absolutely. Are you going to be back in Europe around July, potentially?
1: Potentially, yes.
0: Okay. I, I will be speaking in Portugal around the 4th of July weekend. I know that's oh, a ways cool. from where you are, but um, yeah. I'm not sure. I could be.
1: Around.
0: Yeah, and then potentially there's another speaking event later on this this year in Europe now that things are opening up. So these are things that have been in the works since 2019 and then
1: oh wow. thing, yeah, things that happen <laughs> yeah. and
0: then it all comes to fruition. But I'm just so proud of you. So honored to call you a friend mm-hmm. and see what you're doing. Th- this is what we have to do. We, we made that comment. You said that one of the things that I said at my TEDx about going from preparing for war on the battlefield to war within my own body and mind it's the most important battle that we're going to fight. And if we don't give ourselves the tools, the tactics, and the support around us to be able to do that, not only will we not win that war, but we can't help others in the process.
1: For sure. And, you know, I think if I were to say any lasting thing, you know, it's a holistic healing. It's not a it's not a mind thing. It's not a body thing. It's a mind, body, soul, or spirit thing. Yeah. and And that's the only way it can be done.
0: That. It's like having just one third of the pie and thinking that that's going to be enough to get us where we have to go. Yeah. And it just keeps showing up until we figure it out. So, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And I hope that next time it won't take four or five years before we have a conversation. Yeah,
1: likewise.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.